We're Phil and Cheryl, and we're from Los Angeles, and we're visiting our Rikshava, and we love our Rikshava. We listen and hope you always listen to our Rikshava can be found at IsraelNationalRadio.com. Find us there. Shalom, 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 and welcome back to the Noahide Nation Show. Uh, it's really great to be back on the air. Uh, Adam and I were just sitting here discussing before we came back uh, on the air that how long it's been since we've actually done a show that we really wonder if we can even do this. <laughs> At least a couple of months, I think. Yeah, it seems like it's been longer than that. Uh, yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's only been a couple of months, but that does seem like a long, long time. And uh, We appreciate you coming back and uh, joining us. We're glad to be here, and uh, we hope that we can bring you some relevant shows. Uh, Adam and I have done some talking about uh, you know doing some things that are occurring uh, right now that will have a lot of effect here in the United States, but uh, the end result of it will mean uh, a lot for people worldwide. And especially Israel, I think. And uh, Absolutely. You know, there's, there's nothing that uh, is more important this time than uh, uh, the presidential election that's coming up in November. And from here until perhaps a little bit after the, the uh, election, we're going to be talking about the election. And uh, what does it mean? Who are the candidates? What are they about? Who you should vote for? And I'll tell you this right right now. Um, I, I don't think either Ray or I can claim to be unbiased in any way. <laughs> We could claim it. We, we could claim it, but I don't know that it would be true at all. Yeah, you know, I don't think we're going to get anywhere with but, it. You know, I don't feel so bad about that because every unbiased person I've, you know, I've, I've met has been the most biased person I've ever met. You know, there. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I think there's a. Uh, I think you're, you're you're fooling yourself if you think you're unbiased. So you're better off just admitting you're not biased. You're admitting that you're biased and going for your viewpoint. I think we will have to admit that we will try our best to uh, keep everything in, in an uh, even keel to Even-handed, try right. and keep it balanced. Uh, I mean, we do want to be able to give the information over and, you know, as they say, we report, you decide. Absolutely. Uh, and and that's, that's how we're going to do it. We'll do the best we can. If we're unsuccessful, we apologize right now. Well, you know, uh, going into all of this, when the Republican Party was trying to pick its, uh, its pick, to who's going to represent the Republican Party in the upcoming election, I told Ray that, um, you know, if the name of the pick is Senator Paperbag, that's who I'd be voting for in the next election. <laughs> I remember that. You, you know, uh, I, you know, and it is not because uh, I'm a I'm a diehard Republican. It's 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 more because I feel like um, our current president has done so much to uh, make me concerned about what is he going to do with another four years, and and so that's really what has uh, motivated me in my. My, my desire to, to talk about, you know, this this upcoming election. Yeah, I think a, a lot of uh, conservatives feel the same way. And uh, those who don't just haven't uh, uh, come out of their, their shell yet. 
uh, I think they will start coming out of the shell closer to the the election itself. Well, I think if we have another four years of Obama, I'm going to be shell shocked because <laughs> in that shell. Yes, uh, I, I I am with you. I, I don't know that we can handle or afford uh, another four years uh, psychologically, physically, financially, or any other way. I, I just I hate to say it, and I hate to be that harsh, but I. I can't get off. I can't move away from that. That's how I feel. Right. So anyway, what we're going to try and talk about here today is uh, the obviously one of the biggest voting blocks in the uh, conservative political side is the uh, Christians. They are a huge voting block. Uh, generally, we tend to uh, link them with the Republican Party, but that is not always the case. Uh, we've, we have found that, well, in 2008, when Obama got elected, he certainly had the majority of Christians voted for him. Mm-hmm. There is no way he could have gotten into office without that support. So now the question today is, how are Christians, or can Christians vote for a, a, a Romney. Yeah, and it, it's not Romney's politics that's at issue. That's not what, what, makes, what might make him unvotable uh, for the Christians. It's, uh, it's possibly because he's a Mormon. And uh, sweet little old Christian lady that, uh, that I know, that I won't name, but uh, that I know, uh, she said, um, she was asked if she would vote for Mitt Romney, and she said, no, he's a cult leader. Now, I don't know. This To me, this is a little bit bizarre. So the Republican candidate will look at their religious stance. The Democratic candidate, we won't look at their religious stance. Because if we want to talk about religious stances, let's talk about the guy who uh, went to that, who had that pastor. Right. He was very quickly shut up. At the towards the beginning of his last, you know, presidential campaign, right? So. Jeremiah Wright, if I recall. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, uh, he what was he? He was he kind of categorized him as uh, a, 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 a hater of white America or something like that. I mean, he was very uh, anti-America, um, anti-white in many cases. And this is the place where uh, our current president was basically raised. I mean, he went there for 20 years, 20 years. And and to walk away from there and feel and and literally tell the American public that I was unaffected is absurd. And yet the the American people bought into it. Mm -hmm. The Christians bought into it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people bought into it. And lo and behold, here we are. You know, coming up on four years later. I mean, we're looking at you know, Kennedy had a sim- similar issue with right. uh, exactly. know, being a, being a Catholic. Is is the man in the White House? Is he running the country because he's doing it for uh, based on what he thinks is in the best interest of the people of the country, or is he taking orders from Rome? So that was his uh, his challenge in his presidential uh, race. Romney has the challenge of overcoming his uh, his religious background as well, um, and. Let me just share my personal opinion about the religious issue. In, in regard to politics, it's really hard to care about your religious background. And the reason why is, is because, uh, number one, there, it's not like there are a lot of Orthodox Jews or B'nai Noach being elected to office, right? So, you know, what do we have? We have whoever is running. 
and religion isn't an issue so far, so long as uh, religious beliefs aren't being forced upon us by by people who are running. So we're forced to 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 ignore you know religious beliefs on a certain level. Well, we are, and you know when you think about it, uh, some Christian groups, and there are many actually, uh, consider Mormonism a cult, and. If that indeed were the case, then you would also have to look at Judaism as a cult. I mean, when you look at the number of Jews, I mean, if we're basing cult-like on numbers of people involved in the religion, then Judaism, I mean, they have the smallest percentage of people on planet Earth. And when you get right down to it, there are less Noahides than there are Jews. So... You know, I don't feel like we're part of a cult. I don't. I'm sure the Jews don't feel like they're part of a cult. And yet, if if that's the the yardstick for determining whether you're a cult religion or not is by the numbers, uh, then you know Judaism and you know being Noahide, we're in trouble. <laughs> well, I I know that when you know really we all have a we we take the term cult and we sort of lump everything into it. We have our own preconceived notions of what that word means. Really, a cult can be any religion whatsoever. That you know, that's the basic definition. Is with regard to, but there is a type of cult. Uh, sometimes the manner in which they taught the, if you had a, a um, you, you would take the students, you would have them study their scriptures at irregular hours of the night, when they were barely awake. Uh, you would forbid uh, contact with the outside world. It's a brainwashing. Um, phase is what is what it is and okay. it's it's meant to kind of remove who the person was and replace them with something else right. so the argument i think that some christians are, are are making is that uh the way that mormons take their young missionaries right i think they're 18 when they have to go do a year or two as, as a mormon missionary mm-hmm. um forgive me if i'm wrong but i think it's 18 uh th- there's a training process as it was described to me by a mormon where they're not allowed to talk to their families back home during during the the process. They're, uh, you know, they, they they are taught very intensively. Well, in every religion, when you get right down to it, has ritualistic aspects to and, it and, and intensive teaching potentially. And, right, right. So, they, you know, this is not an ongoing aspect. It's not like the person is never allowed contact with the outside world. That aside, I really don't care. <laughs> Because, <laughs> no. because the, the fact of the matter is, is that the Mormons that I've met function well. Uh, they seem to do, they, they, they seem to be pretty well collected people, and they contribute as much as anybody else to the world, um, yeah. in a positive way. Right. As far as the election goes, putting a Mormon in, in office, this is bothering me. Not really. Not right now. I, I don't see Mormons going out blowing up buses. That's so, for sure. You know. I, they, they, you know, it's not such a problem for me right now. Well, and I, I think for uh, we conservatives, uh, and again, we're talking about the let's let's talk about the Christian right. I mean, Adam and I don't fall into that. I guess we fall into the right, just not the Christian. Uh, but the 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 masses seem to want to be in the you know Rick Santorum and Michelle Bachman uh, camp. They seem to be the the general favorites, the Tea Party favorites. I mean, Romney was not looked kindly upon by a lot of conservatives, but if you were more of a, uh, uh, an economics 
conservative. Sure. You really did look to a guy like Romney or even a guy like Newt Gingrich. But you look at a guy like Romney who basically saved the Olympics to be mm-hmm. held here in the U.S. Uh, he has had many, many years of, of corporate life, I mean, running a corporation and other corporations. I mean, his his business was buying other businesses. And, of course, the, the opposing side says that, uh, well, he fired a lot of people. Well, you know what? There's a lot of places that have had to do that in, in these harsh times over the last few years. Right. It's not just uh, that, that Romney had a corner on the market of having to let people go. I mean, sooner or later, and the unions are going to have to you know, accept this fact, that you're going to price yourselves right out of the market. And sometimes you have to shave the, the edges in order to sustain profitability. It's, it's at the end of the day, you want your checks to clear at the bank. You know, anyone can walk around with a smile and, oh, I, I didn't have to fire anybody, but when you go to the bank and your checks don't clear, suddenly nobody's happy anymore. So, suddenly you're, you're a bunch of Greeks out in the streets writing <laughs> is what exactly. happens. You know, exactly. Another issue that Christians have, or, you know, with even conservatives in general seem to have with um, Romney is, is also his, his prior stance on social issues. Uh, in regard to gay marriages, in in regard to uh, abortion, um, but he, but those are issues that he has actually come and, and, and taken a different stand on. Now, yes, I, and I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, we've got our current president who's now taken a strong position in the belief of gay marriage. Uh, he's always been a strong believer in in abortion, but to say that. People are not allowed to change their minds is absolutely ridiculous. They have the, the phrase, the term for it is called flip-flopper. Well, you know what? People change. I know that I've changed over the course of my life. You've changed over the course of your life. And if you haven't changed over the course of your life, you're living under a rock. Right. I mean, you have no exposure to life itself. Sometimes people change. I mean, in order for progress to happen, change has to happen first. Right. So for to, to, to accuse somebody of being a flip-flopper, okay, you, you really need to analyze it a little bit. But to sit back and say that it's totally ridiculous that people aren't allowed to change their mind uh, from the day they're born, that's even more ridiculous. Now, now let's talk about a fear that, that I think conservatives have that it might be a justifiable fear. Um, is he a rhino? See, this is... Uh, the question here is, uh, is, is this the kind of person who flip-flopped to get elected, and he's going to flip-flop when he's back in office, right? Is he a Republican in name only? That's, that's the question. Is he a rhino or not? Oh, you mean an Obama? Well, I don't think Obama was ever <laughs> a Republican. <laughs> well, no, I'm just, I mean, all this thing about hope and change. Yeah. I guess there was plenty of change, not much hope anymore. Well, no, there, no, there's still lots of hope that somebody will change. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, okay. what, that's what this election's about. I, I stand corrected. This is the hope for the change right now. So. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, at, at the end of the day, the real question once again becomes, uh, based on the 2008 uh, election with Obama winning, having had the majority of Christians, are they going to be able to uh, uh, swing to, to vote for Romney based on the president's 
past history, both, you know, I shouldn't say both, but in many areas, uh, you know, based on his financial success, his job-creating success, his, uh, the, the, the attempted uh, national, you know, health care. Uh, I mean, the age-old question, do you feel better today than you did four years ago? I mean, you really need to answer Absolutely. that question. So I really wonder, are these people, if they're so against a Romney because he's a Mormon and so against Obama because of his past history, which we now know is dangerous to this country and to us as Americans, or they can just stay home? Right. I, I, you know, I, I'm really wondering, and if I were a Christian, what would I do? I mean, uh, I, I don't have the, the, the negative feeling towards Mormons. I don't have the negative feeling towards Christians, really. I mean, we tend to agree on more than we disagree on. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm like you, uh, you, the fact that he is a a Mormon doesn't concern me as much as if he was a a Muslim with an Islamic belief system. You know, I certainly don't want the Constitution shifted over to Sharia law. Sure. And the women, you want to talk about a war on women, there you go. That's, That's it. Unfortunately, in any bipartisan government like we have in America, you're really given one of two choices. You can vote for guy A and you can vote for guy B. And what you're left with at the end of the day is the question, you know, out of the two of them, hopefully you've got a good choice, which is, wow, they're both really great candidates. Which one can I, can I choose that's going to do just a little bit better job? More often than not, though, as we've seen in this country, our choice is between, you know, knucklehead A and knucklehead B. Uh, yeah. And which one Which one will do less damage? That's, yeah, that's what we're faced with. And, you know, I'm not saying that, that Romney's a knucklehead. I mean, like you said, he's a he's a very savvy uh, uh, capitalist. He's, he, yeah. he, he knows business. Um, where he stands on the, the social issues, is he going to flip-flop on those? Is he going to stand true to it? I don't know. All I know is that four more years of what Obama's been doing not only has not worked, but he hasn't even accepted any responsibility for it. In fact, you know, I marvel at how, how well Obama is able to, in his speeches, you know, put an escape hatch into his speeches, you know? He is I, amazing. <laughs> I, I, I'm giving the people on the other side of the aisle this opportunity to come on board with my plan. If they don't come on board with my plan, if they don't support my plan, and my plan fails, then and, and this, conti- this country continues to deteriorate, well, we know who's responsible for the failure of this country. And interestingly enough, the last plan that he put forth basically was shot down, I think it was 98 to 0. Mm-hmm. I mean... So it's not like the Republicans didn't want it. Nobody wanted it. Right. Nobody wants sure. this guy's plan. Uh, you know, so it's, you know, I, I, I'm with you that we have to vote for the guy who's going to do the, the least amount of damage, but also who, by mistake, can even create jobs. Sure. And I believe that's a guy like Romney. If we want to get this country moving forward again so that, uh, people can be more generous in their in their zedica because they're feeling good about the economy. They feel good about their jobs. They feel good about their futures. Then you got to go with a guy like Romney, I believe. 
Um, I, I, I think, you know, in fact, let me just point this out. There's a, a gentleman by the name of Tony Perkins who's a, uh, a president of the uh, uh, Family Research Council, uh, which is, uh, you know, deeply uh, conservative. And he was uh, reflecting on the evangelical position in a statement after uh, Romney gave a commencement address at Liberty University. And the school was basically founded by a now-deceased television evangelist who had uh, a pretty huge following. And the thing that was, was really big about this is, is like when he was giving the speech, it was kind of like pins and needles. Everybody was like for, but everybody was against, and at the same time, everybody was not sure. Right. And we've got this kind of like this roller coaster ride without even being on the ride. Right. And uh, you know, we've also got uh, the uh, a Reverend Gabriel uh, Seguero. I hope I pronounced that right. He's uh, uh, with the National Latino Evangelical Coalition. Actually, told Fox News, get get this. He told Fox News, the Latino channel, that we're conservative on social issues and progressive on immigration, poverty, and housing. So the question is, which will be the issue of the day? I mean, how can you how can you lean so far right one way and so far left another way and go in to a voting booth and legitimately elect somebody? Those are the folks who probably should stay home sure. because they're going to vote on pure emotion. Not on what makes sense, what's rational, what's best for the country. They're going to vote for what's best for them. And here's the guy, one of the guys uh, uh, that's a leader in there, uh, a pastor. And this is this is his position. It's difficult to understand how they, they come up with this. Uh, but I have a problem with a lot of different religions. I really wonder how Noahides would vote. There's no statistical information available on that. But we can look at the Jewish people. They continue to vote, in this country anyway, they, they continue to uh, pride themselves on voting for Democrats, liberals. And to me, I've always believed, and even more strongly today than I did yesterday, so to speak, a vote for a Democrat by a Jew is really a vote against Torah, in, well, in my estimation. It, it, it might not be Torah in its totality, but I'm telling you, on many, many of the key issues in Torah, they're voting against that against God. It's interesting you, you point that out because uh, Israel National News had a um, a poll, and, and if I remember correctly, they said that fifty nine percent of Jews. Adam, Adam, hold on one minute. Oh, no. uh, I'm, uh, this is uh, not the new and improved show. We are playing catch up here because uh, we have to take a break. Oh, Forgot no. all about okay. that. We just start rolling and rolling and continue to roll. Uh, let's ha- hold on to that poll thought. Folks, let us get away so Israel National Radio can make a buck or two here, and we'll catch you on the other side. See you soon. Israel National Radio Jewish History Moment. Zev Shapotinsky was born to a middle-class Jewish family in Russia in the 1880s. The brilliant young man's life was changed when he saw the small villages and ghettos of Eastern Europe. He created the first Jewish fighting unit since the time of the Romans, the Jewish Legion, which eventually became the Israel Defense Forces. He was arrested and imprisoned by the British for his self-defense units and earned the disdain of pacifists and the admiration of downtrodden Jewish people whom he inspired to leave Europe for the land of Israel in the 1920s and 30s. Jabotinsky's fiery brand of Jewish nationalism inspired Betar, the revisionist movement, the Irgun, 
Menachem Begin, and countless others. This moment in Jewish history was brought to you by Israel National Radio. Shalom and welcome back, folks. Adam, I really apologize for uh, cutting you off on that. It sounded like great. In fact, I told you, hang, hang on to the thought because you were headed for some great deep water. Please continue with the poll. Well, I was just going to say on Israel National News, they had a poll about how many Jews were likely to vote for Barack Obama. And that number was about 59%. Mm. 59% said they would vote for Barack Obama again. And uh, for those Jews who decided that they who wouldn't vote for Barack Obama, versus those who said they would vote for Barack Obama. Actually, the interesting thing was the divide seems to be over religious grounds. Well, even just from a a Zionistic standpoint, if you consider what has Barack Obama done with our friend Israel in his presidency, how has he maintained that relationship? What has he done for it? And I've heard this from uh, friends, and I've heard this from Jewish friends, and from non-Jewish friends who are going to vote for Barack Obama, who claim a, a strong Torah attachment. And the claim is, is that foreign policy isn't easy. You have to be realistic. You can't be naive. Barack Obama is trying to uh, tread through these waters the best that he can. But, you know i got to say, Barack Obama threatened to shoot down Israeli planes if they went to, to, to fire on Iran. I don't know how many, you know, I've, I've never threatened a friend to shoot them uh, yeah. before to go, you know, <laughs> stop a drug dealer. Yeah. Uh, if I had a friend, Joe, and he was on his way to, to save some kid from a drug dealer, right, I'm not going to shoot Joe, right? Right. I'm going to support him. I'm going right. to say he's doing the right thing. I'm going to say he's doing the right thing. And this is and this is not the way that, that uh, Obama approached Israel. He, he has approached from the beginning with arrogance with demands. He doesn't care what the this the, the, the Jewish situation is. No. He's going to end he's going to end uh hostility in the Middle East. He's gonna be praying peace. Yeah. He's gonna end it by ending the Jews. Which is yes. He's gonna end Israel and everything that he's done to date as far as I can see, uh has been towards that uh, goal and well as far as I'm concerned he's done everything but hand the guns over to the Palestinians. He's, he's willing to go back to the 49 <laughs> armistice line. Right. You know, this this is not a, a person who cares about Israel. So are they not only against Torah, but they're also against is their homeland, the land that God gave them? Is that what we're supposed to think of this? I, I You know, I'm really you know, confused. I, I think it depends on what kind of attachment any person has to Israel. Um, if you have a real attachment to Israel, and you've really paid attention to what this president has been saying and doing, I don't see how you. I don't see how you can vote for him. I really don't. Just just on that. Just on that alone. Forget about the economy. Forget about social issues. Just let's talk about the way this president has viewed Israel. How, how he he has uh, tried to help. Tried as you know in, in parentheses. Right. And at least on the surface, Christians say they love Israel. They're on the side of Israel. You know what they say behind closed doors. I don't know. I'm not at any of those. You know campfires. Uh, but what they say out front is that they're in favor of Israel, and yet they uh, they could potentially put this guy back into office. So, you know, what as just a couple guys looking at this from the outside, what are we to take away from that? Is you know, are we really headed towards uh, you know complete socialism? Are we headed towards the day that Israel will be gone, or are we looking? forward to the day that Hashem has prophesied that Israel is going to take over. There's going to be this major war, and guess what? We're not going to be on on the top end of this. You know, uh, We're going to be on the wrong side. Tell me about it. Rabbi Richmond 
uh, when he's come to town and has spoken, people have said, oh, we're so worried about you over in Israel, yada, yada, yada. And he always says the same thing. He says, I'm not the one you should be worried for. I'm in Jerusalem. I'm okay. I'll be fine. You're the ones that should be worried for yourselves. Right. Which is a startling statement. It is a startling <laughs> statement. Because here, here, here it is. The assumption is, is that uh, God has a covenant with Israel. And that's true. He does. Mm-hmm. That means they're never going to be destroyed. But God doesn't have a non-destroy covenant with America or with Egypt or with, you know, uh, any of the other countries. It's up to us to decide, do we want to be destroyed? Do we want to be allies of, of Israel and thus allies of Hashem? And this is one thing that for me has always been very important in regard to the Noahide laws. When you look at the prophets and the, 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 how the prophets talk about the destructions of the Gentile nations who come against Israel, there's one thing that the Judaism teaches us. And here's the real hope. Hope and change. Here's the real hope. And that hope is is that prophets, prophecies that are have a negative outcome, like death and destruction and whatever, mm-hmm. don't have to come true. Right. And so the thing is, the fact of the matter is, is just like Nineveh overturned God's uh, a, a destructive decree against them, we can do the same thing. But we've got to make sure that we've, we've got strong ties of Israel that we're supporting them, and, and we're blessing Israel. And the key ingredient to what you just said is that man must cause the change. It's not going to happen if you just sit back and wait for it to happen. It's not going to happen if you pray for it not to happen. Man has to do something to be involved to make the change happen in order for that decree to be rescinded. And only that. You know, Rabbi Katz coming back on board with us also. I know a lot of people uh, loved his uh, teachings. I myself love his teachings. I talk to him you know, regularly uh, uh, during the week. And uh, the guy's just a, a nonstop bundle of information. I absolutely love him. And as, speaking of Rabbi Richmond, you and I are going to be able to hook up with him uh, over the weekend, uh, this coming uh, uh, Sunday, where we're going to be attending a Noahide wedding. Yes. And, uh, and this is pretty cool. You should tell everybody how, how this wedding came about. Well, from what I understand, I'm going to get more uh, about it when we're actually there. But as I understand it today, the mother of the bride-to-be, whose name is Kelsey, and uh, the, the groom is uh, Shay Samuelson, and her mother was actually on the Noahide Nations website in our Noahide community. It's kind of like a networking kind of thing for Noahides. And she happened to be going through all the people. I mean, there's like a thousand some odd people in it. And she ran across Shay's profile, his picture, and she tried to convince her daughter to get on Noahide Nations and you know get registered and get in touch with this guy. You should just, even if you just become friends, she wouldn't do it. She's a, a Facebook gal. So anyway, she was so on board with getting these two hooked up that she contacted Shay herself. And Shay, the, the, mother? the mother, mm-hmm. contacted, she wrote in his in his profile and posted to him and uh, gave him the information on her daughter, I guess. And he then contacted her, uh, again, via email and said, look, I'm not, really not a Facebook guy. I'm, I'm hopeful, hopefully he said I'm a No High Nations guy. <laughs> um, but... He's not a Facebook guy, but, you know, if you want to talk, here's my phone number. Give me a call. And left it at that. Well, apparently she called him, and the rest is history. Or soon will be as of Sunday, I guess, you know. Funnier still, I, at, at, he was at the conference in, here in uh, last July, sure. and they had dri- drove down here. And when the family was leaving, they got to the border of Texas, Oklahoma, where it says, "You know, thanks for visiting. Y'all come back," or you know, something like that. He says, oh, "I 
I am never coming back to Texas. This place stinks and it's hot. <laughs> and lo and behold, they're getting married in Palestine, Texas, where Kelsey is that's her home. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and bring Rabbi Katz uh, in here. Give him another round. Uh, I know you folks are going to enjoy this teaching. So Rabbi Katz, come on in here, and folks will catch you right after his teaching. See you soon. Hi, and welcome back for another week on the radio in the Academy of Shemin Aver. I'm Rabbi David Katz. This week we're going to discuss a very old question in Torah. What is the difference between Noah and Abraham? We're going to focus a little differently. We're going to ask what's the difference between Shem and Abraham? As Abraham and Shem had direct relationship on the Temple Mount with the union of Melchizedek and Abraham, a priest of God above. But the age-old question that everybody asks, who was more righteous, Abraham or Noah? Noah was a righteous man in his generations. Of course Abraham was more righteous in his generation. That's true, isn't it? Well, this has been told for a long time. Then we're going to beg the question more. Well, then who's really the greater nation, the Noahides or the Jews? These are futile questions. Do we really need to spend hours of every partious Noah that comes around? Well, who was going to ask the same question, give the same robotic response? There's no need to give the same responses. There's no need to ask futile questions. So to really get to the gist of the answer and to the bottom line, let's remove the focus from Noah, as Noah's going to be the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, the seven laws of Noah. Fine. Noah had his seven laws. Abraham and the Jews have their 613, and the nations are different and don't come together. That's another misnomer that's been going around for a long time. So, let's delve into this and tackle this issue, and let's remove Noah from the conversation, and let's focus on the original Noah Hyde, Shem, son of Noah. Shem's Torah, essentially, is based on seven laws. We all know the seven laws. Those seven laws make up the fabric of the entire creation that we live in. This is called Derech Eretz, the way of the world, the maintaining of the universe. Kiyom Olam. Shem's seven laws that he inherited are, are seven laws that maintain integrity of the world. This is called the level of tohu, or chaos. Generally, chaos might be considered a bad thing. But, when we learn physics, it's not a bad thing at all. And in the Torah of Shem, it's quite contrary from a bad thing. Shem's Torah is infinite. It's absolutely infinite. It's so high that to get into his Torah, you would be in a, in a, in a, sticking your head in a river of infinity. Where would you start? Where would you end? To be really a master of Shem's Torah in its rawness, in its unadulterated text or form, you would have to be grappling with infinity. Shem offered that Torah for 400 years. But who's going to tackle infinity? 
However, Shem understood there must be somebody, and not just the offspring of his five kids, to say he passed it on like Noah. Because then you're just going to be repeating what you heard. Like a parrot. Shem couldn't afford a parrot to just repeat what he taught. So he knew he couldn't just pass it over. And his five sons were not on the par of, of handling the infinity. But there must be someone to come along to handle infinity. Now that somebody to come along is not going to be on the same level as Shem perhaps. And maybe that's just what Hashem wanted. Someone not on the same level. Somebody who's a student of Shem, but not a parrot of Shem. Who's the greater basketball player? Michael Jordan or Phil Jackson? We all know the Chicago Bulls and their championships in basketball in the 90s. Who's the greater basketball authority? Very simple. Without Michael Jordan, nobody plays the game on the level that he did. Phil Jackson, however, he may be the teacher, but in this instant, he's a little bit like the student. He's the real student of the game, and from this perspective, Michael Jordan would, would pose to be the game. The game is infinite. There's nothing he cannot do. The man can fly. But the student of the game, watching the game, observing the game, tweaking the game, can look back and say, you know what I see in this game? I see X amount of, of, of functions. Certain amounts of pass and shoot and dribble and run, defense. Shem's Torah may be infinite. That's what we're calling the game. The game of life. Abraham, he's not going to tackle the game. He's not going to reinvent infinity. There's no reinvention. Shem achieves the mantle. He has reached the level of the Torah of infinity. Abraham, on a lesser level, deals with the chaos. Now, to Shem, it's not chaos. If you were to walk in, in a person's office, you would say, this is chaos. They'd say, no, nah, I know where everything is. And they're right. They know there's this and there's that. You know, you look in their world and they're chaotic. But to that person, they have perfect order. Abraham says to himself, if we step back and organize chaos in the perception of others, maybe this will be palatable and digestible not only to myself, I'm trying to learn infinity just like everybody else, but the world can then partake in the Torah of Shem in a digestible, permitted manner. Not only that, maybe if we were to step back in a lighter text and say, you know what I see here? Shem, you're basing seven laws that flex to infinity. Those seven laws don't even have any tangibility. They're so great, they just absorb everything. But if we step back, we can say there's 613 categories here. Just like the limbs and sinews of a man's body. Man is a small world, the world's a big man. Just like the oral Torah, the Rambam, saw, you know what, here's the, the infinite mass of the oral Torah. If we step back, we can have 14 parts. Or just like the oral Torah that was written into the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, he looked back and he said, you know what I see here? Six orders of the Mishnah, the written law. 
Abraham says, you know what I see here? I see 613 categories. That's the rectification to Tohu. This is called Tikkun. The vessels of which chaos can dwell within. You're not losing Shem's Torah. You're garmenting it with 613 different specific components. And those 613 can have a, a dual function. They can pose as the basis of a lifestyle of a nation. Thus the seed of Abraham, he learned 613. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then next thing you know, a, a Sinai experience where a nation will live out those 613, preserving the infinity of the Torah of Shem. But simultaneously, you're going to have the Noahides. It's good for them as well. Because now with the 613, they can partake in the Torah of Shem as well. Thus Abraham saw with the 613, it's good for both. One nation, that will be their lifestyle. The other, that will be their lifestyle. Meaning, they will live through those 613. The other nation, they will live through the 613. The world now can learn the Torah of Shem. Abraham took it back. Now, Abraham is like a pair of glasses. You see better with glasses. Does that mean it's better to poke your eyes out? No, it's better to have your pure eyes like Shem did. But if you're not on the level of Shem, you need to see what's going on. Abraham put glasses on the Torah. He said, you know what I see? 613 groups here, classifications. Just as Shem was the high priest, Abraham, who was one level beneath Shem, and the level of kindness, Chesed, he was a Kohen Hediot, a regular priest. And then we see, the Jewish people can live on through those 613 as a proper nation. And the Noahide nation can feed and dwell and exist off those 613. So what is really, what is it to be of the student of Shem? The student of Shem is of the 613 commandments. Now you didn't lose the seven. The seven are the basis of reality. But those seven mitzvahs or laws that the Noahides have, they have several choices. As the Torah says, that any Noahide learns the Torah, he's like a high priest. The Noahide can learn the Torah in the infinity like Shem. Not the Jew so much. He can be like Shem the, the high priest. He can do other things as well. He can milk the Torah of Moses himself through the vessels of 613. He can have the Jew teach him the 613. He can convert. Whatever method he chooses, he can derive the Torah of Shem out of the Torah of Moses. The Torah of Shem is not unattainable. And it's not distant with Abraham 613. And it's not a question as to who is greater. Shem's Torah is very high. Infinite. Abraham lowers it down and puts it into categorization that we can experience it, live it a little more clearly. Glasses. Noahs have an array of options of how to get back to Shem's Torah. It is in the, the mold of the 613 as a vessel and enclosement to Shem's wisdom. And again, 
The, the door is always open for the Noahide to be that, that high priest, to learn the Torah, and to be like Shem on the level of infinity to the Torah. So thus we see there's the chaos of Shem, the infinite nature. To Shem it's not chaos, to Shem it's just Torah. And to Abraham it becomes a tikkun, a rectification. And together, when you have the two working together, the tohu and the tikkun, chaos is a loose translation of the word tohu. It means strong power. Each of those seven is a raw power. And Abraham brings out the power by putting it maybe in, let's say, five different commandments. So we can investigate the power and express the power. When we have, just like the kosher letter pay in the Torah, when you look at the white parchment inside, there's a kosher white parchment base. When the two nations work together in, in raw power and rectification, that arouses the powers and light of redemption in the world. The two nations come together, we can bring out the Torah of Shem and the infinite realm of Torah to the world, and the world will be filled with the knowledge of God. That's all for this week. I'm Rabbi David Katz. See you next time. Have a great week. Welcome back, folks. And Rabbi Katz, thank you once again for joining us and providing uh, just another fantastic uh, a teaching. He just—I I hate to always say it—but he seems to hit a home run every time up to bat. I just—I <laughs> absolutely love his teachings, and we'll look forward to having him back uh, next week. Well. Adam, this has been kind of a rough show for us coming back the first time. Um, uh, folks, we appreciate you sticking around with us. And uh, Shavuot Tov, we hope to see you next week. Today's the big uh, Today's the big election. Well, next week, maybe we'll talk about the results. Excellent. That's right. You voters in Wisconsin, make sure you get out the vote. As they say in Chicago, vote early, vote often. See you next week, folks. Shavuot Tov. Every Tuesday on Israel National Radio, the Temple Institute's Temple Talk with Yitzchak Ruvain and Rabbi Chaim Richman. It's about Jews. It's about Parshat HaShavuah. It's about non-Jews. It's about the world. It's about our relationship to the Divine Presence. It's about the Holy Temple. It's about the rectification of all humanity. 3 p.m. Israel time. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Temple Talk. It's everything you need to know about the Holy Temple and the Temple Mount. Every Tuesday on Israel National Radio.